Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, psychedelics, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Chris Crane is back with a new episode with special guests, former NBA star and Hall of Famer Chris Weber, CEO of Weber Willis Ventures and co-founder of Players Only, and Peter Sack, co-president of Chicago Atlantic Real Estate Finance and managing director at Chicago Atlantic. Chris and Peter join us this week to discuss what drew them to the path of becoming social equity advocates and their role in New York's cannabis social equity program. If you're interested in learning more about Weber Willis Ventures or Chicago Atlantic and their efforts in social equity, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow players only Chris, Peter, and Chicago Atlantic on LinkedIn and other top social media platforms. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Chris Weber and Peter Sack. All right. Well, Peter, Chris, thank you guys so much for uh, joining us today on The Green Rush. Thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So before we start jumping into the meat of it, uh, let's do a little introduction for our audience, for those who, who may not be as familiar with you guys and your work. Um, so, Peter, we'll start with you. And give us a little introduction to Chicago Atlantic and who you guys are, what you all, what you all do. Hi, I'm, I'm Peter Sack. I'm a managing director at Chicago Atlantic. We are a lender to the cannabis space, uh, focused on providing loans to cannabis operators across the supply chain. Uh, we've been working in the space since 2018, uh, and we've deployed north of $2 billion to cultivators, retailers, distributors, processors in nearly every state legal jurisdiction. That's terrific. And Chris, you know, our listeners, I think many of our listeners will be familiar with you from your past life, but uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and, and, and really sort of your journey from NBA star to cannabis entrepreneur. Yeah, well, thank you again for having us on. Uh, yeah, uh, my name is Chris Weber. I played in the NBA for about 15 years. And uh, uh, during my time there, uh, being that uh, my body is my temple and working out and different surgeries and everything I had to endure. Uh, I became uh, a cannabis uh, advocate as far as even in the sports and health space. Uh, after uh, sports, I co-founded Players Only with my partner, uh, Lavetta Willis, which is a cannabis brand. Um, and in the business sector, I've always uh, been interested in uh, getting access uh, to finance, infrastructure, uh, and corporate knowledge uh, to those uh, that uh, didn't have that access or those that have been marginalized. And I'm really uh, lucky that after my career, I uh, was able to uh, meet men like uh, Peter Sack that really uh, uh, believes in an uh, in, in, in impact. Uh, and so uh, here we are. Uh, here we are just a, a few years later after retirement, getting old, but having a lot of fun in this space. That's great. That's great. Well, and, and, you know, before we jump into New York and the, the social equity programs and the, the lending program that you have, which is, you know, which is really what this article is about. Uh, would love to pick your brain a little bit more about this. You know, you bring up this, this intersection of sports and cannabis. Um, tell us a little bit about what that was like in the NBA. You know, were player, you know, is this something that you saw was, was, was commonplace where players using cannabis to deal with their various, you know, injuries and recovery. And, um, I believe at that time it was still on the, the league's banned substances list. So you know, how did folks reconcile those, those two things, right? The, the, the relief that cannabis can provide for these types of ailments, injuries, whatnot, and the fact that the league wouldn't allow them, you know, uh, to, to do so. Well, I think you have to, uh, you have to walk the line and understand that there are rules and also repercussions for your actions. So uh, I communicated with the NBA that my body was uh, first and foremost in, in my priorities and that uh, at the time I was having surgeries back to back to back and uh, the different medicines that I was on uh, not only, you know, caused other health issues, uh, 
many other health issues. Uh, at the same time, I did not know what the damage was going to do later. Uh, being in the West Coast, I was lucky to have uh, great doctors out there who were cannabis advocates as well and had them write letters to the league. And uh, again, I understood that if I used and was uh, uh, that if I used and was caught that uh, that there were repercussions to those actions. And uh, I just felt that I'd deal with those uh, if I, if I ever uh, got to that fork in the road. Um, and a lot of players did. Uh, mostly players I know in the football uh, area, baseball players, uh, because it was about rest and rejuvenation. You know, just to give you one scenario, if you're uh, if you have a game at seven, let's say uh, you're there uh, at the arena about four thirty, you play at seven. Game is over at ten. You're on the plane at eleven thirty. If you're on the West Coast, you're in the city uh, at um, two thirty-three in the morning. And you're supposed to have uh, uh, appetite management. You're supposed to have mood management. You're supposed to have sleep management. Uh, so whereas uh, at that time, uh, the NBA was uh, uh, against it, they've always had an open door policy of uh, being progressive, being ahead of the curve. And I think that's why you don't see that in the new CBA, uh, the new collective bargaining agreement this year. And uh, some sports uh, never had it on their banned substance. So that's because uh, they knew that it'd be an uphill battle because of the use with their players. So again, I think with everything, any medication, you have to um, make sure you use it moderately and wisely. Um, but uh, there are a lot of players definitely, and I, I think you've you know, heard some of the best players ever uh, playing now that talk about uh, using cannabis as a, a health management tool. So uh, it, it's been something that players are always kind of ahead of the curve because it's their bodies and uh, you figure uh, take care of your body first and, and address everything else second. Well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Were, were you involved at all in that new uh, the new CBA, or did you uh, like submit any comments, or was that uh, were, you, were you too far gone from the league by that point? No, I, I would say that um, hopefully I've always been a, a conduit between players in the league, out of the league, and the league itself. And so uh, for a long time, uh, players like myself and others uh, uh, that were in, like you said, when it was a bad substance, hopefully. Um, uh, hopefully we were part of, of getting the understanding with the league, the education, and therefore uh, affecting it for the benefit of, uh, of the players uh, playing now. So hopefully, hopefully uh, that has some effect on that. Well, I'm sure you're, I'm sh I mean, I'm sure your advocacy and, and the advocacy of other you know, professional athletes played a role there. So I appreciate the work you did. Um, and I'm sure the, uh, the current generation of players uh, is appreciative as well. Um, so let's, let's, you know, let's start jumping in a, a little bit to, what got you guys here? I mean, Chris, you, you I, re I remember when you first got involved in this and, and there was some publicity around that your, your original focus was on Michigan, correct? Yes. Uh, well, they're, they're kind of two different things here. So uh, Michigan is more of, about our brand players only. Uh, it's a, a cannabis brand that we, uh, that we have, uh, we have some wonderful, uh, endorsees and, and, uh, uh, part of our team, uh, some magnifiers such as uh, Ray Kwan from the great Wu-Tang and, and others, uh, Matt Barnes from uh, All the Smoke. We're very excited with some announcements that we have. And so, yeah, players only, we use our relationship with uh, players and the fact that uh, the culture of sports, we are that. Um, and uh, kind of magnifying that brand, that, that that's one thing. And in Detroit, not only uh, were we uh, helping our brand, but we wanted to make sure that in areas like Detroit that have been uh, targeted by kind of uh, draconian drug laws that we were part of training there. We were part of the inspiration and part of the messaging uh, there in Detroit and, and to inspire and give hope. And so that, that's one thing in, the, in New York, what we are doing, um, uh, I don't believe has been done before. And more importantly, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, something that I'm so proud to be a part of because it affects so many more lives than just our brand, uh, than the, just our brand in Detroit by uh, granting access uh, to capital, to uh, infrastructure, to corporate knowledge, especially when you talk about um, a place uh, and a company uh, like a CAG and, and someone like a Peter Sachs. So two different things. And I'm so proud of uh, what we're doing in New York, because again, uh, uh, to me, um, just in some of the conversations we've had with our social equity partners, um, this is gonna create a generational uh, wealth shift 
in areas um, where uh, maybe before you didn't see this potential, especially from the history uh, that Summit had in this area uh, in our country. So very excited to be a part of it. That's great. So, so let's get into New York then. Um, I mean, that's you know the, the the focus of the article and and really the, you know the attention I want to bring on, on what you guys are doing. This is this is in New York, and you know I guess before we get into the meat of New York, I think some historical context is important. Um, social equity programs have been you know proliferating around the country for the past decade or so. I think there's been a lot of very well-meaning regulators and advocates and activists. Um, who have pushed for the inclusion of populations who have been disproportionately impacted um, by cannabis prohibition in the new cannabis economy. And yet, I think by and large, the consensus has been that most of these programs have not really worked, at least have not really worked as intended. Um, so uh, before we get into the solution, and I want to spend the, really the rest of the time on that solution, uh, I mean, Peter, Chris, it would be great to hear a little bit from you as to you know, why you think that some of these programs, as well-intentioned as they've been, haven't really lived up to uh, the, you know, the, the, the expectation set in terms of the impact that they would have on these communities. Well, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll be very quick because uh, Peter... Uh, he knows why and he has the solution uh, and, and has come up with that with, with some great minds. And I'm very excited about that. And I'm you know, definitely you want to keep the focus there. I, I worked with a lot of social equity applicants. I worked with a lot of black and brown people uh, in the cannabis industry. One, there was a frustration that every Zoom meeting that I had with 30 or so people, um, I never saw anyone that looked, looked like myself. Uh, the second, um, uh, cannabis is not the only industry in which um, I work with those that need access to funds, capital, infrastructure. And, you know, if, for those of you out there, if you could just think about all the problems with predatory lending um, uh, and, and just think of it this way. And, and to be very honest, as a, as a black man, if they redline houses so that black people cannot afford to live in certain areas, and you cannot get loans from the bank to live in the area where you have the collateral, you have uh, the work history, um, you have the family, then how in the hell do you think you're going to get someone to loan money to you when there is no safe banking and there's no access to capital and you have a record and you've been hit by these laws? And so it really took um, uh, business leaders to help uh, work with the private sector. It took a thoughtfulness. Um, it, it really took um, uh, it, it really took uh, inspiration or aspiration on the side of our partners. And so for me, it was very personal. Um, and knowing that in all of these areas, whether you're black or brown, um, male or female, that you have been marginalized, your dreams have been marginalized, your opportunities have been marginalized. And so, um, as you said, I think many um, local municipalities um, um, many av uh, advocates really had the right thought uh, in mind when they started social equity programs. However, I would say that um, for me, uh, it was 2020 hindsight because we had worked with so many people from Oregon to California, other places where they're all over. Um, and we knew personally what their problems were because we, Lavetta and myself, uh, we're trying to help them there personally, not as a group, but just uh, uh, individually. And I think that uh, what the state of New York uh, came up with, what uh, Peter uh, Sack uh, suggested and came together with, I think was so thoughtful because it took kind of um, the mistakes of the past uh, without placing blame. Um, but to say this is how we think we can uh, build a bigger and a better way, a brighter way for everyone. Um, and so uh, those are some of the problems, uh, along with just being a regular entrepreneur and you better work your butt off and hopefully just catch some great breaks along the way. Um, but again, I'm really part, proud to be uh, part of a team uh, that's solution driven and, um, you know, uh, we're led by Peter in that respect. That's great. I mean, yeah, look, like the cannabis industry, uh, I think there's a misconception out there that like you get a license, uh, you get a license to, to, to grow or sell cannabis and it's, you know, it's, it's essentially a license to print money and this industry is really hard, right? There's a lot of challenges here that 
other industries don't face, access to capital being, you know, being among the most, but 280E, lack of banking access, you know, crazy taxation rates, no interstate commerce, um, right? I mean, these are challenges that nobody has to face in any other business. But I think you nailed it, you know, you really nailed this when we talk about lack of access to capital. And if you can, you can get somebody, you know, you can put together a program that can put a license in the hand of somebody who's deserving, but it costs money to stand these licenses up, right? It costs about a million bucks or so to open a dispensary. It costs more than that to open a grow. That's not something that most people have. It's, it's less likely to be something that someone who is from a, a you know, a, a disproportionately impacted community or a justice involved uh, person's going to have access to. Um, and so you can put licenses in folks' hands, but if they don't have the capital to get open uh, and to stand their business up and to compete, they're not going to be successful. And in many cases, they wind up, you know, selling the license before they ever get up and running, walking away from it, uh, right, if they're in a more competitive state, um, or, you know, maybe they get up and running, but they don't have the, you know, the growth capital to really compete in those markets. So, um, so Peter, you know, as you looked at this situation, I guess, it'd be great to hear a little bit more about the problems that you saw. And, like, what was that light bulb moment uh, for you? Or was there a light bulb moment where you're like, here's how we can be part of the solution? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'd say to add on to what Chris said and what you said about so a lot of the challenges of social equity programs, another big thing that New York did different and why we were so excited about what they were doing is that they put social equity first and not just prioritizing it in an abstract sense, they gave licenses to social equity applicants first. And that first mover advantage is extremely valuable and extremely important. And I think in most other jurisdictions, social equity programs came as, I think calling an afterthought is a little too harsh, but they came in after the fact, when a market has been established, when the best real estate locations had been already found, and every social equity applicant has to come in as, as the new kid on the block and compete. And so in New York, we had a, a a blank canvas to launch a social equity program on terms um, that that we thought made sense and that would allow them to compete long term against larger, better funder operators. Um, uh, you know, I I don't think there was there wasn't really a light bulb specific light bulb moment. The, I think that the fundamentals here were clear from the beginning that uh, we had a large base of dispensary operators um, that despite what their resumes look like, have an have very strong entrepreneurial histories, are extremely ambitious, extremely motivated, and a state that's eager to back them and is, and is providing capital to support a social equity program. And more than just dollars that's been appropriated, they created a fund uh, led by Chris Weber and his team uh, to actually realize the vision of opening more than 150 uh, uh, dispensaries backed by social equity applicants across the state. And so more than just the state contributing $50 million, it was the infrastructure to say, okay, this is the team that's going to support these openings. These, the, this is the team that's going to help find real estate, develop real estate, install POS systems, um, set an infrastructure. Um, and, um, you know, Chris and his partner Levetta spent spent a lot of time uh, combing the market and talking to people, and and I was talking to them from the beginning as well. Um, um, but there was there was a point where I said, Chris and Levetta, you guys are putting together something amazing. If we're going to do it, we want to um, we want to really put our whole weight behind it, and we want to craft it from the ground up in partnership with you. And um, when they said, Yeah, let's do it, we started putting pen to paper and putting together a loan program that we thought would benefit these operators the best possible way. So you mentioned this. So the state, the state put together a fund. The state itself put in $50 million, which I don't believe there's any other state that's done anything similar. I know Massachusetts has a fund that you were now, what, six years after the law was passed um, or seven years after the law was passed, and, and they're, they're just now getting around to implementing it. Um, $50 million sounds like a lot, um, but when it comes to a state the size in New York and the number of licensees that they're, uh, that the, or licenses that they're granting to licensees, $50 million goes pretty quick. 
right? I mean, particularly if you're talking about building out cultivation facilities, I mean, you could build out 10 grows for $50 million, uh, maybe less, depending on the size of them, uh, more dispensaries. But um, so, so it sounds like you guys identified that there was, there was a need for more. Um, so talk to us about, you talk about your, your loan program. Tell us what that means. How is this loan program structured? Um, and how do the social equity licensees get to take advantage of this? So the state contributed $50 million. And uh, as you said, they quickly realized that $50 million doesn't go nearly as far as they would like. Um, and so that's from the beginning, they wanted to partner with the private sector to raise a $200 million fund. And we from early on decided that partnering, that that supporting dispensaries is the way to bring the most people under the tent as possible to support as many business operations as, as possible. And so our dispensary loan program um, is both a combination of operational and financial support. Um, together with um, the Dormitory Authority of New York, we are identifying properties across the state. The fund is entering into leases with third-party landlords, and the fund is, is um, conducting the build-out uh, of the site and funding 100% of the build-out costs and providing the dispensary operator with a key-ready uh, dispensary, including POS systems uh, with all the infrastructure, except for perhaps um, the branding on the front door. Um, the operator, in turn, um, has a move-in ready dispensary and, um, and signs up to pay back a loan that represents the cost of the tenant improvements. And that, and that loan is a 10-year loan uh, that amortizes over the 10 years and carries a 13% interest rate is unsecured, doesn't prohibit any other forms of indebtedness, any other types of fundraising, and has very little covenants. And so the aim here was to leave as much of the wealth that's created by these entrepreneurs and starting these businesses in the hands of the dispensary operators, in the hands of the people that were given these licenses, such that uh, we think that we've really limited the capital needed to open one of these dispensaries to Initial working capital, initial payroll, initial inventory. Okay, so they still have to raise. They still have to raise those costs. But I mean, the build out's your big. I mean, that's your biggest expense, right? Is the is the you know the build out the real estate costs? So you guys are covering all of that, and you're basically putting them in a building. You all, own, I'm assuming you guys, you guys own the building. You buy you buy the real estate. You build it all out, and then you le and then it sounds like you sort of you lease it back to them. Or who, who owns the real estate here? We're renting the we're rent a third party landlord. So the fund is entering into a lease with the third party landlord. The fund is building out the dispensary, and then the fund is subleasing it to the tenant. And what happens if the business fails? Uh, what's the recourse there? Well, the first case would be to simply replace. Since since the fund is the landlord, the first case would be to if we can't provide the right operational support to turn the business around would be to replace the tenant um, with ideally another license holder. Gotcha. So you're not, so, so, you know, somebody defaults, uh, right. They can't, you know, they, I mean, then it happens, right. Maybe they're not a great operator. Maybe they're not in the right place, whatever it is. They don't walk away from this saddle with a lifetime of debt. And we're not no, absolutely. Your no personal guarantees. <laughs> and, and, how, and, and I think, you know, again, and I just, I think, you know, when you really think about the 13% over 10 years, and, and of course, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. Um, and, and again, it had to be someone like CAG in the state of New York that, that did this. But in talking to so many, um, not just social equity applicants, friends of mine that are in the business, you know, to be able to kind of have, you know, this support, especially in a such a young uh, market is, is really what I've heard from you know, the, the applicants that they, you know, really just gives them that much more faith. You're already, you know, walking uphill, you're already putting your best in it. And again, uh, you know, you don't have the fear of failing that you'll lose much more than, than what it is. And I just thought that that was just something by CAG and State of New York that just builds trust because again, this is about a more viable market overall. So we all can thrive. And I think that that, you know, is really the steady heartbeat of it all that really bridges that trust. Oh, it's, it's hugely important. I mean, you see, you see so much, probably not just in this industry, but in general of, you know, what you'd call sort of loan to own, right? Folks who are, you know, making loans 
usually to businesses or business owners who may not have as much experience or business sophistication. Uh, they think they're getting the capital that they need to get up and running. And the first sign of trouble, the lender basically takes the business away um, and gets to own that business. And they're left with either a ton of debt or nothing. Um, sounds like you've kind of I don't want to say de-risked this for the for the entrepreneurs, because, I mean, being an entrepreneur is, is inherently going to come with some degree of risk. But um, you've certainly it certainly seems that you've taken away the predatory aspects of it. And I guess sort of taking a step back. I mean, Chris, you spoke about this a little bit. I mean, it'd be you know for for, for those listeners who aren't as familiar with this, it'd be interesting to hear you guys talk a bit about the types of predatory schemes that you've seen out there and you know what you were trying to avoid and the types of situations that you were trying to help these entrepreneurs avoid? I can um, give one quick example of someone that I know. Um, so for everyone out there, if you could just imagine uh, if you're late on uh, your rent for, let's just say two months, the landlord gets 35% of your business and you have to pay back the two months with interest and if you don't give him a deposit for the next four months because he's not sure, uh, it, it could be any worse. I mean, it's the true, I've seen the true definition of a, of a loan shark. I mean, um, you know, you know that, that's what, again, again, because it's been so much value put in the license. And we've also, you know, you know seen um, the equity of, of others' companies because they can't uh, get access uh, to capital. Um, you know, we've just seen, let's just say, a discounted rate for the investor <laughs> up to 10 times. And so it's just not, um, you know, and this is for everyone. Again, I'm so happy, as Peter said, that we put uh, social equity first. Uh, and the reason why we did that is because in these neighborhoods where now companies are going to come into and have so much success, we wanted those um, uh, that were demonized and marginalized to benefit. Um, and so that's very important. However, everyone, every man, woman of all color and creeds uh, understand, you know, how tough of a business uh, uh, this is. And I've seen predatory lending go across the board, not just because of, of how you look, but most of the times because of uh, what people assume the potential of the market is going to be. Yeah, I assume the potential of the market's going to be or just recognize the lack of alternatives in the market, um, right? I mean, so, it, 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 how about that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes high interest rates are not necessarily just predatory. They're just the only interest rates around, right? And this is what happens when there's a lack of, you know, lack of capital, lack of investment, right? I mean, it's the reason everyone's been clamoring for safe banking for so long. Um, I mean, I think... Uh, this may be a good education for some of the listeners. I mean, you mentioned, you know, these folks are at, would you say was tw uh, 12% um, uh, on the interest 13. rate? 13. I mean, Peter, how does that stack up to what you're seeing for, you know, your standard cannabis company loan? We, Chicago Atlantic manages a publicly traded NASDAQ listed REIT called Chicago Atlantic Real Estate Finance uh, that lends to a large number of cannabis operators, generally large multi-state established cash flowing entities and backed by real estate. And our weighted average portfolio yield there is 19%, north of 19%. Um, and to your point, that's like that's about that's about a lack of available capital for cannabis operators. Then that's why those rates are so high. Um, and that's the rates that our investors demand as well. Um, in this case, we took a step back at Chicago Atlantic, we, and we are lending to the fund, uh, to this infrastructure that was created by Chris Weber in New York State, so that the fund and Chris's team can 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 deploy capital to these operators. Um, and Chicago Atlantic benefits from that diversification and from the infrastructure that they built to to support the operators. And really, that's how we're able to support this program at such a lower cost of capital than we would than we would otherwise if we were lending individually to startup dispensary operators. Yeah, I think that's really important context for folks that, um, you know, I think somebody who and granted, this is the Green Rush podcast. It's an audience that's pretty familiar with the cannabis industry. But, you know, for those who aren't, they may hear 13 percent and think, whoa, that's really high. But like for cannabis, it's it's really not. Um, in fact, it's, it's it's quite low for a cannabis loan. Um, oh, it's it's low. It's low for a non cannabis loan. If an entrepreneur were going to go and try and find an SBA loan to open a coffee shop, those rates would be a couple hundred basis points cheaper than ours. 
uh, and those would be much more structured, complicated uh, legal documents, and probably not ten years. <laughs> right, right. Um, That's so right. we think this is an extremely attractive opportunity, whether you're talking about cannabis or non-cannabis. Yeah, absolutely. And and so so Chris, on your side of it, you, you all are responsible for deploying the capital. It sounds like right. Um, how much has been deployed so far? Um, well, yeah, how much has been deployed so far and 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 kind of what's next? Well, we're excited. Uh, again, as Peter said, our goal is over 150 uh, um, dispensaries open over time right now. Uh, as far as the numbers that's deployed, we've uh, hit sort of uh, a snag. Uh, if anyone has uh, kind of heard about the New York market. Um, and so we are waiting for some feedback to continue what we've, do, what we've been doing. And so I do not have those numbers uh, specifically uh, right now as, uh, as, again, as I said, uh, we're waiting for uh, the third quarter to start. And hopefully I'll have that information there. Yeah, Great. it's interesting. We've done, um, we started construction on a number of projects and early in um, over the summer. Um, and as, as you said, our aim is to get these dispensers up and running and operating as fast as possible. Um, we did the first funding from Chicago Atlantic and the state started funding earlier in the fall. Chicago Atlantic funded um, a little less than $20 million with which we hope to have um, close to 20 dispensaries open this fall and open in time for the in time of the legal battles have been once the legal battles have been completed. Gotcha. And so at this point, are any, are any stores that you guys have funded uh, properties that you guys have, have, uh, have put through the process? Is anybody open yet? Uh, only a number of pop stores that were previously pop-ups have opened. Um, um, but unfortunately the injunction put a hold on, um, on, on our operators, which is a shame because we have, we have, um, Many sites that are ready to open as soon as the as soon as the regulators can approve them, um, and unfortunately, that's on hold until the until the court processes work themselves out. And Chris, if I if I could, uh, because as you can see, we're very excited to open and to deploy funds. Uh, there there will not be a a, a problem once uh, the go is uh, the greenlit uh, the the once the project is green lit again. Uh, but uh, if I could talk just a little bit about locations. Um, I've, had, I've talked to applicants all around the country and we know again, you know, real estate, real estate, real estate, right? Location, location, location. Uh, the firm was so thoughtful in uh, the way that uh, we looked at real estate, uh, the, the way that uh, we looked at New York in general. And one of the things I'm so proud of is, uh, Peter just mentioned our pop-ups. Um, anyone who knows New York, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Bleecker Street. Um, we're very happy that one of our social uh, uh, equity applicants, and Chris, I believe you talked to him, Roland, um, yes. you know, to have a location uh, that's thoughtful by your partners, because if I could just, you know, be honest for a second, if we're talking about uh, the difficulty and lack of access to capital, then that affects real estate, right? That affects your bargaining power, that affects... Um, just, just, just everything. And so the confidence, the state of New York, the confidence, um, the CAG has given um, these third-party um, uh, landlords um, has been something that's just been awesome because we've been able to uh, make sure that it is not just a piece of paper saying, here, now you're on your own. But, you know, many times I've seen that some of the social equity applicants that I've worked with and uh, befriended across the country don't have access to uh, some of the best real estate, and that will not be the issue uh, here in New York. Whether if you're from Harlem and and you're from that, uh, from, you're from that borough, and you want to represent uh, yourself there, or or whether you're in one of the more rural rural areas, I just love the fact that um, the real estate, not only the opening of the dispensary, but the location of the dispensary has been prioritized, and you know our applicants have true partners. Um, that can be thoughtful with you down the line. So very excited about the locations, uh, the neighborhoods, um, and, and the communities we'll be working with. Yeah, I mean Bleecker Street. I, I'm I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up in Manhattan, um, so I know I know where Bleecker Street is. But for those who who don't, I mean you're, you're right in Greenwich Village. Like that's a it's a prime location, um, and also historically 
one of the sort of the sort of the, the heart and soul of New York's legalization movement going back decades to the old, the old yippie movement in the 1970s. Right. That was all based right out of Bleecker Street. So to be there, that's it's 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 both culturally significant as well as I think, you know, commercially not just commercially viable, right, but uh, but commercially advantageous. Um, so, how's that location doing, right? How's the how how, how have things gone for that uh, for that Bleecker Street store? Yeah, um, Bleecker's Bleecker's among the first stores, at least, um, uh, that first opened as a pop up and found tremendous success as a as a barely built out pop up store on Bleecker on Bleecker Street. It had lines going around the block, uh, and then we closed the pop up, completed the renovation. Um, and it's it's one of the few that are still that are still open despite the injunction today, um, and we're grateful that it is because it's 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 an example for what we're trying to do across the rest of the city. It's great. And, and how's that store doing? It's doing well. I don't have this. I uh, I don't want to. You don't need to give us sales numbers, numbers but, but just, uh, <laughs> just generally, how's, that, how's, how's it been going? But I I walked by uh, last week. Uh, and there were just as many people there as I see in any other adult use, adult use, adult use store. And this was at, uh, like two 30 PM in the afternoon. <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, the, the great thing about Roland, that's, uh, I think is 133 Bleecker street. His wife is an accountant. So, uh, he, he has the boss, uh, in there every night counting those numbers. So I'm sure, uh, when, when we see her, we'll, we'll know who to ask, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're really excited. And he's really embraced the community and some activations that are there and, and that entertainment district, uh, you know, area is just uh, it's just really cool to, to to say, wow, you know, we have something going over there. So very excited about Roland. That's terrific. I wish you guys the best the best of luck with that, and wish Roland the best of luck too. I really enjoyed speaking with him for this uh, for this piece. So how many? And how, you mentioned uh, you mentioned a goal, but how many stores do you plan to have up and running once this injunction is 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 lifted and and you know if you were to fast forward say to you know the end of 2024 a year from now uh how many of these stores do you uh you know would, would you would you expect to have uh, have operationalized i expect that we're gonna have 20 open um ready to open when the when the injunction is lifted and i hope to at least double that by next year if the injunction lifts soon enough that's great that's really um, meaningful frankly the um you know it's interesting the the we've our limitation hasn't been on capital. Besides the legal challenges, our limitation hasn't been on capital. It's the same limitation that every dispensary operator has in opening a site. It's finding the right locations, getting them under lease, arranging contractors, building out sites in places that are difficult to build out. Um, and that takes time. And so we will be deploying this over the next two to three years uh, to complete to complete our goals and to deploy all the capital that's been allocated. Terrific. So this is, look, I, I mean, I wrote an article prior to this one about the challenges that social equity licensees have in getting open, um, had on uh, Sean Birdie and Armani White, the owners of a store that I've been helping to advise um, that's been trying to get open in Boston, took them five years to get funded. Um, and really, it was meant to showcase a, why we need to have safe banking passed and the and the, the the real detrimental impact that this has had on um, on social equity licensees, but also I mean really just to show how how difficult it is uh, for social equity licensees, and I think this applies as well to just just almost any mom and pop licensee how difficult it is to raise capital. Um, and you guys are coming up with something that's the that that seems like a workable solution. So. I mean, what's next for this? Is this just going to be a New York thing or is there a possibility that, you know, you can take the show on the road? I, I think that this template, again, um, again, the thoughtfulness of uh, the state of New York, and I have to keep saying that because anyone uh, that's ever, uh, I'm sure people know how hard a public uh, private partnership can be. And so, you know, really uh, having, um, that thoughtfulness first going forward is something that we're really happy that, you know, we're going to get to show the proof in the process. As Peter said, uh, the, the money has not been an issue and we're very excited about uh, when this injunction is lifted to have 20, but we have been contacted um, by other states. Um, and so, um, you know, we're just really happy to be in a position where, uh, you know, really trying to figure out a problem in, in one place may uh, lead to the solution to others, even though we know each community is, is different in and of itself. And that's something that we respect. Uh, but we're, you know, very happy that 
uh, local communities kind of uh, have looked to us and said, hey, we see what you're doing. Uh, why don't you come talk to us about that as well? Yeah, I mean, look, local like every every you're right. Every community is different, but uh, I think that you know the need for the need for operating capital and startup capital for business that that, that translates across every state and every community. Um, so I you know I certainly hope that you you know that you guys find success in, in other states. Would love to see you here in Illinois, right? I'm a I'm a, a native New Yorker and would always be a New Yorker in my heart, but I'm a Chicagoan now and have been for uh, for for the past six years or so. And we've had a lot of issues here in Illinois with getting social equity licenses up and running. Um, I would venture to say that the majority, if not close to it, uh, sold their licenses after getting licensed, um, right? And, and some of that was just due to lack of startup capital. Um, right? And there are more coming and there's still more licensees who I think would like to get open rather than sell. And, and uh, you know, it's been a difficult, a difficult ride for them. So, you know, we'd love to see you guys here. And I think, you know, anybody involved in a state program that has an equity program probably feels the same no matter what state they're in. Uh, are there states that you guys are targeting or are, are, are you even at liberty to, to discuss that? Understood if, you, if you're not. Uh, targeting would be the wrong word. Um, we're trying to have conversations with as many states as we can about their interest in, in, in funding a social equity program and, and brainstorming on the infrastructure that we can help put in place to support social equity applicants. Um, I think there's a lot of greens, a lot of opportunity uh, in some of these newly opened recreational states or soon to be adult use states like like Maryland, uh, like Minnesota, like Ohio, um, like Pennsylvania, when they determine what their adult use rubric will look like. Um, and so we'd love to be a part of those those conversations. And I think it's most the opportunity is um, is most exciting in places where the rules haven't been written yet, where the chess pieces haven't been put on the board yet, and where social equity applicants can have um, an even playing field to compete first alongside uh, non-social equity applicants and larger capitalized enterprises. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, excellent. Now sooner, my message for regulators is really the sooner the better. That time is time and a head start is the most valuable thing that can be given to social equity applicants. Absolutely. <laughs> so before we wrap, I mean, one thing we haven't, we've talked a lot about the retail here. Are you doing anything or have any plans to do anything on the cultivation side or is this, uh, is this, is this still, is, is the plan for this to stay retail focused? At the moment we're focused on retail simply because it's just the way to help the most people with a limited amount of, uh, amount of capital. Yeah. Um, no, that makes sense. Gr uh, cultivations are uh, cultivations are, are grow sites are very very expensive, um, so the capital unfortunately doesn't go nearly uh, doesn't go nearly as far, um, but uh, also needed there. Um, you know, uh, one thing that I've heard a lot about, and I want to give a, a shout out to uh, my my friend Adam Smith, uh, who with the Alliance for Sensible Markets, um, friend of the show, um, and you know he's been pushing for these interstate commerce compacts that you've heard, uh, the folks have heard about, uh, that, uh, you know, you may see states like California, Oregon, Colorado, um, uh, assuming that they have some sort of guidance from the federal government allow product to be transferred between one another. But the thought would ultimately be that it could, you know, some of this product could go to states where, you know, cultivation is more expensive and, and, uh, you know, and, and just not, you know, not, not really natural producer states, mainly, you know, most of the Northeast and Midwest, um, you know, if interstate commerce were to open up, and I know this is a big if, uh, but uh, do you think there might be any willingness on the part of, say, a state like New York um, to try and figure out a partnership between you know, the folks who have been most disproportionately impacted on the production side and those who've been most disproportionately impacted on the distribution side, which, you know, there's always kind of been this 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 partnership in the illicit markets, at least, where product is grown largely by rural, mostly white farmers on the West Coast um, who also are, you know, who faced a lot of uh, 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 you know, raids and, 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 you know, helicopter flyovers. And, um, you know, these aren't generally, you know, wealthy communities. These are pretty, you know, pretty out, you know, far, you know, far, far outside uh, 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 rural communities. And they've been cultivating and supplying product into cities across the country where it's largely been distributed by the very folks who um, are the 
you know, are supposed to be at least the beneficiaries of these social equity programs. Is there a scenario under which you could see that formalized in a way um, it, under this kind of legal framework? It's an interesting concept. I mean, I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for the state of New York to fund to uh, subsidize growers in Oregon and California. No, and that's and that's not what I'm referring to. But but more more a way to make sure that like you know growers in Oregon and California, and and you know not just any growers, right? But the growers who come from the you know come from the illicit market, um, and who have had a really hard time navigating, and many of which right, a really hard time navigating these new legal markets um, to give them access to the same markets that they've traditionally had access to, right? Because they weren't growing product in Northern California for the most part to serve California. Some, a lot of that product is winding up in New York City, uh, right? Or in Chicago or in Detroit or in Atlanta, right? In cities all across the, you know, the East and the Midwest. Um, anyway, I, I, I'm sure this is, we're getting a little far, uh, far astray from what you guys are doing, but um, you, you all have access to folks there. And, and this is, you know, this is a concept that I find, Interesting in that, it, you know, is there a way to you know, like bring this relationship that's traditionally existed in the shadows right out into the light? Yeah, I mean, I think it's to some extent inevitable when interstate commerce becomes a reality uh, that that um, dispensary operators and distributors are going to be eager to bring to bring a broad set of products. And I think that idea of the carketing back to um the original grower set and methods that have been tried and true to over over decades is going to find resonance, and that I think there's big opportunity for those growers to build a brand around that uh, and use that to get into these markets and showcase their products and get in front of bud tenders. No, that's it's terrific, I, and I appreciate that. And I, I know I know I was getting a little getting a little a little a little stray from the uh, from from the program here, but it is you know it's something that I that, that I've thought a lot about, and you know, Adam Adam talks a lot about and talking about interstate commerce, and um, you know something to think about is kind of the you know one of the one of the next steps here, if and when that happens. Uh, but we're we're fairly far from it. Um, so, I mean, we're you know we're kind of kind of getting to the end here. Is there anything that I missed um anything about these pro you know this, this this program what you guys are doing um that you want to make sure our audience knows about any ways that folks could participate right uh, what else what else do we need to know that i that i forgot to ask you today um i, I really um you know chris first again thanks for having us on and I, I think your last point about the growers and not to address uh interstate commerce not to address uh anything else except you know this isn't um a, a handout. Uh, these are uh, people that have, have worked hard and, and kind of what you just talked about, those growers and traditional kind of growers that have come from the legacy or illicit market, that it's, it's the same community. And, um, you know, not many times are you able to uh, be part of a, of a somewhat uh, new and um, and, and growing an economy like we are with cannabis. And the one thing that I think has been great is that leaders uh, like Peter and, and others, whether it's ROs in New York or uh, around the country, is that I really do believe that um, people are thoughtful for this community, trying to put the participants first, whether it's those that have been affected and been in the market from legacy all the way to those that are looking for a new and, a, and an opportunity now. And in no way is it perfect. And there are a lot of things that we must overcome. However, um, it's, it's somewhat refreshing that, um, you know, New York and other places are deciding to put people first in those opportunities. And, and that does give a give a little bit of hope. And those farmers that you're talking about need that need that as well. So hopefully that does continue uh, as uh, the market grows and, uh, and and kind of stabilizes. Oh, I appreciate that. I guess, you know, there's one question I, did, I didn't I didn't get to ask, which is, how do you find the applicants, right? How do you find the folks that uh, that you're going to put into these dispensaries? Do you rely on the state of New York to do that? Do you guys do any vetting separately, right? How, you know, how, how do you find your, your, your licensees? It's a, it's a mix of push and pull, but we work with OCM and license holders reach out to us to join the program. Importantly, we don't have a, we don't have a, a separate vetting process. The only qualification to be a part of the program is to be a card licensee. There's enough bar artificial arbitrary barriers in place that have excluded members of these communities for far too long 
for us in creating a social equity fund to create a whole new barrier that's just inevitably going to exclude more people. Um, and so um, I'd encourage anyone who's interested to please reach out to Chris and Lavetta's team uh, and talk to them about where, uh, how they might participate, where they might find a site that's attractive for them and how and how we can be of help. But this is, we think this is the largest investment in social equity that's ever been done in the cannabis space. Um, and, and so we're gonna have to prove ourselves with execution over the next three years. And I hope that other people are follow, follow suit. My hope is that next year you're interviewing three other people who have funded something that's even bigger than this in a dozen other states um, um, so that this can really have the impact that it, that it deserves. Absolutely. I sure, I sure hope so. Um, cause this is, this has been, this has been a challenge I've thought a lot about for, for a long time going back to, I mean, well, I can't say going back to when, but I mean, I mean, this was something that we talked about when we were drafting the Massachusetts law initially. And, um, you know, we couldn't write into the ballot initiative uh, that the state was going to fund this. That that came later, um, and it's just been such a challenge, state after state after state. And so I'm, I'm, you know, on a personal level, really appreciative of the work that you guys are doing, um, and uh, and I and I hope to see this not only successful, but uh, as you mentioned, replicated elsewhere. Um, so you know, Peter Sack. Chris Weber, thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you for all that you're doing, um, and uh, I hope the uh, I hope our audience hope our audience learned something and got something out of this because this uh, this has the, I think this has the power to be truly transformational, and we really appreciate what you're doing. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Our thanks again to former Hall of Fame NBA basketball star Chris Weber, CEO of Weber Willis Ventures and co-founder of Players Only, and Peter Sack, co-president of Chicago Atlantic Real Estate Finance and managing director at Chicago Atlantic. To learn more about their work, please visit their websites and check them out all over social media. In particular, you can pop over to chicagoatlantic.com. And as always, thank you for tuning in. We very much appreciate your time and attention. If you'd like to connect with the Green Rush team, you can find us over at Twitter, over at the underscore Green Rush, or on Instagram at the underscore Green Rush podcast, or via email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We love hearing from you. And lastly, do not forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcast app. If you have not done yet so, maybe ask your favorite aunt to do the same.